The reading for today's sermon comes from the book of Acts, chapter 4, beginning at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful and gracious Father, open our eyes that we may behold beautiful things in your word, that we may be gripped again by the gospel, by your generosity in giving your Son to us, and by the generosity which is to characterize all those who are one with Christ. Refresh us by your Spirit, we pray, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to sit. And just before I begin today's sermon, I I need to make an announcement to the children who may have noticed that the candy tree has gone missing. (gasps) Upon the advice of some of the ladies of the church who have noted the effects of the blood sugar spikes and also realizing the unfortunate side effects of candy chewing during sermons, the candy tree will now make its appearance after worship. If you have any questions, please direct them to the Ladies' Fellowship Committee. (laughs) To whom be great thanks for their insight into things which escape pastors. I want you to imagine a thought experiment, if you would. Take a random sampling of the world's Christians. Take a hundred Christian believers selected at random from all those alive today, from different countries, from America, from Europe, from, I know Europe isn't a country. I know Europe isn't a country. (laughs) Japan, China, Brazil, Russia, Kenya, and so on. And arrange them, get them all together in a room, and arrange them in order of wealth. And number them from one to a hundred, put them all in a nice long line, number them from one, the wealthiest, down to a hundred, the poorest. And now ask yourself the question, where are our friends located along that line? Pastor Oleg Volkov's congregation in Russia, you'd find them somewhere in the middle around about the 50th percentile for the statisticians among us. They're about the halfway point of wealth among today's Christians. Pastor Radon, whom we prayed for earlier, in Uzbekistan, he and his congregation are down at the 70th or 75th place in this line. Three quarters of the world's Christians are more wealthy than his congregation, but a quarter are less wealthy, including those at Pastor Kip Chelashaw's congregation, in Nairobi, Kenya, 
there's some diversity there. There are one or two wealthy expats, but among the actual people from Nairobi, Kenya, in that congregation, they're down around about number 90. All those kids, 80 to 100 of them, who come to worship every Lord's Day, and they have to feed them bread and milk before they're able to eat. They really do need to eat something before worship. So what about us, then? In this random, and let's assume, uh, statistically representative selection of Christians from across the world, the average American, so the median American, the one whom there's 50% are wealthier and 50% are less wealthy, the average American, and if we are representative of America, the average member of our congregation, would be in position number five out of 100. Anybody in the top 20% of American earners, so the top fifth of American earners, anybody in that group would be number one out of 100 in the world's population. Just let that sink in for a second. What that means is, I mean, if you're more wealthy than average in America, but not like one of the 1%, if you're done really well, let's say uh, you've had five to 10 years experience in the financial services industry, or you're a uh, graduate engineer in your 30s, or you're a manager in a company, you are number one. And everybody else is looking at you. In fact, the, um, somebody who's in the bottom tenth of the American distribution, follow me here, <laughs> somebody who's in the bottom tenth of the American distribution makes it to number 10 in the world lineup. That's right. 90% of American Christians are more wealthy than the bottom 90% of the world's Christians. Which illustrates the obvious point that the Lord has blessed us financially in a truly remarkable way. And we know some of the historical reasons for this. It's to do with the economics of the country we live in, which itself actually is to do with the Christian influence that not we, but our forefathers uh, instilled in the culture here, we have been blessed to a remarkable degree financially. It becomes even more obvious, actually, because I realize it, here's part of the problem with that. Um, the cost of living is a little bit lower in Uzbekistan. So if you just line up the incomes, it's not really very representative. So you can eradicate that variable by looking at just Texas over time. Did you know that in 1940, so this is within a human lifetime, in 1940, 60% of Texan households did not have proper plumbing. So they lacked either running hot and cold water or a toilet or a bathtub or a shower. That's, that's kind of standard for modern plumbing. Hot and cold running water, a toilet, yeah, the toilet, one of those, and, to, and somewhere to, to bathe. 60%, nearly two-thirds of Texan households within a human lifetime by 1990, it was less than 1%. Now it's basically zero. It's unmeasurably small. Within a human lifetime, we here have come to take for granted. You, you, you couldn't give away the home that your grandparents were born in today. Nobody would want it. They'd want to fix it up before they moved into the squalid, tiny, under-furnished little place that your grandparents were blessed to be born in. And the reason to highlight this is not 
not, 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 to send us all off on a guilt trip. We don't talk about money here at All Saints very much, and that's actually deliberate, because actually the Bible doesn't talk about it all that much as such. It does talk about the poor quite a lot, actually. But so often we miss fire, and, and maybe you've been unfortunate enough to be on the receiving end of a kind of homiletical beat-up when the pastor has basically taken it upon himself to make everybody feel guilty for being so rich. That's not the point. The, the point is simply to make sure we're identifying with the right guy in the story, with the right person in the narrative that we've just read, to set the appropriate context for understanding what's going on in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 to 37. We are Barnabas. Well, are we? Well, that's the question. We are Barnabas. Are we going to be Barnabas? That really is the question. If you wanted to boil it down, if you really wanted to make today's message really super simple, you've got to think, well, we are Barnabas. The guy in verses 36 and 37. Are we going to be like Barnabas? You know the narrative of the book of Acts so far. Regulars here will have... um, uh, we'll know that we're working through the book of Acts. At this point, the church is growing quite wonderfully. Uh, it's still located mostly in Jerusalem, or rather the, the converts who've, who've come to Christ since Pentecost are still mostly in Jerusalem. It's quite a cro- close-knit fellowship, uh, but it's growing to the extent that some uh, economic diversity now exists within the community. And there are some who are in severe need for reasons that I'll go into in a few minutes' time, but suffice it to say that those who had more provided for those who had less. And that's the story of today's passage. And what I want to do is, is to draw out a couple of lessons from this. I'll spend most of my time on our first point, which is a very practical one, and then there's some really significant connections I want to highlight towards the end of today's sermon between Barnabas's generosity and the gospel that he believed. There's some interesting things for us to think about there. So let's just jump in first and just look as practically as we can at what's actually going on here in these verses. You could summarize it like this. When those who had more at this stage in the early church perceived around them significant poverty, significant need, they sought to alleviate it. Simple as that. They sought to alleviate severe poverty. Just to remind ourselves what happens, Uh, Verse 32, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, they're unified. No one says that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. We'll come back to what that means in a few minutes' time. And the apostles, verse 33, are testifying to the grace of Christ and the power of the resurrection. And there's no needy people, come back to that word again in a few minutes, among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds of what was sold, laid it at the apostles' feet, and it's distributed. So where people have need, needy people, Those who have more provide the resources for them. And then there's an example given, verses 36, 37. Joseph, who becomes known as Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. Uh, He's he's cited as an example, and this is quite common in Luke's gospel, actually. Luke will drop in the name of somebody at an early stage who proves significant later. He does that a few times. uh, Barnabas is actually the first person who's not either an apostle or a would-be apostle who's named in the book of Acts. Very interesting, apart from Jesus. He's a very significant character. And here's why. Because he took it upon himself to... Well, he had skin in the game, shall we say. It's going to be this Christian thing, and here's somebody starving, and we'll come to why that's what's going on later. Here's a man who will provide. 
Now, let's just look at some of the details here because we do need to avoid some misunderstandings that surround this passage. And the first thing to say is that this is not about tithing. You're familiar with what tithing is. The word tithe means tenth. And all of you, I know this for a fact because we've talked about it uh, in the membership process here at All Saints since before I was here. It's one of our membership pledges. We commit to tithe to the work of Christ here at the church. What that means is that one-tenth of our income is given to the work of Christ here at All Saints. I take it that that's obvious. I hope it's obvious. Um, The tithe has been established since before Moses. This is not a Mosaic Covenant Torah thing. Uh, Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, the proto-Christ, the priest and king of Jerusalem, and the priest king of Jerusalem brought out bread and wine. Just go and think about that for a while. Not for very long. You don't need to think about it very long, do you? It's, oh yeah, the people of God in our forefather Abraham bring the tithe to the priest king of Jerusalem who invites them to his table. Dr. Jordan, in his master's dissertation, no, it wasn't his master's dissertation, that was on something else. In one of his extended writings on this subject, Jim Jordan, points out that that's why those who don't tithe will be excommunicated. Because if you don't bring the tithe to the king, obviously you wouldn't be uh, receiving the bread and wine from him. The reason we know that tithing isn't what's going on here is because tithing is about our income or the increase from our labors. The Lord blesses us richly with income. Uh, Under the Old Covenant, it was mostly agricultural, and the first tenth of the income belonged to the Lord. Strictly speaking, it's not yours. It's not ours. It's given to us temporarily for the sole purpose that we should be able to give it back to him. This is obvious from the way it's spoken about in Scripture. Let me just give you this one example. In Malachi chapter 3, The people who withhold the tithes are accused of stealing what belongs to God. Will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, the prophet says, speaking the word of the Lord to the people. But you say, how have we robbed you? And he says, well, it's in your tithes and contributions. Another name for how they brought the tithes. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse, Malachi, the prophet says. Otherwise, you're stealing from God. That first tenth, and children... A tenth is really easy to calculate, okay? Because you just remove a zero. (laughs) Isn't the Lord kind? He even makes math easy when our salvation depends upon it. And so it's stealing from the living God to not tithe, because the money belongs to him. Now, I know there are complexities with how do we calculate the tithe, in an era where the taxation rate that some of us pay exceeds, especially when you take into account all those hidden, stealthy taxes, looking at my economist friend here, not that it's your fault, of course, <laughs> Mr. Clark. <laughs> Although we do wish you'd do something about it anyway. No, it's not. <laughs> what do you do when there's the equivalent of not just the tenth that the civil authority is due, but a plague of locusts every year, taking another 10% in the form of sales tax and insurance premium tax and whatever it is you pay to airports to get them to take the plane off the ground. I don't know what that's invented taxes. But really, I mean, somewhere between the net and the gross, take a zero off, 
more difficult, right? And I do think there are some nuances there, which is why if you want to talk about it more, we come and talk to me. But that's interestingly, in our liturgy, if you noticed, Pastor Neil is so careful with how he constructed the liturgy here. After the worship service, I will say, and I quote myself, um, let's now with gratitude in our hearts bring to the Lord his tithes and our offerings. So how do we know this wasn't a tithe? Well, it wasn't income. He sold property. Can you see the difference? This was a free will offering. Sometimes in our tradition it's called giving beyond the tithe. This is what you might do when a missionary friend of yours needs to fly back urgently from the field because their father-in-law is dying and they send out a quick email saying, listen, guys, we just need to buy a flight. It's going to be ridiculously expensive because it's short-term. Can anybody help us out? And you're like, you know what, I can spare $600. This is not a problem. It's giving beyond the tithe to meet cases of urgent need. So that's the first thing we need to get clear. This is the additional generosity which is required, not of everybody, but of those who are, you know, let's say in the top 10%. Oh, there we are again. <laughs> Second... This does not, oh please, this does not indicate that the Bible teaches the communal ownership of all property. Yawn. Uh, it used to be popular, believe me, the stuff that you have to read if you're a pastor. It used to be popular on the basis of a superficial reading of verses 32 and 34 to claim that this passage indicated a kind of Christian socialism or Christian communism in which the early church abandoned all property ownership and entrusted everything to the church and somehow that got into abandoned all property ownership and entrusted everything to the civil authorities. I don't know quite how that sneaky move was made, but that's a sneaky move that goes beyond the sneaky move of messing with the exegesis here. This text does not teach the corporate ownership of all property. And it's important just to flesh this out. Actually, biblical scholars have stopped claiming this now because it's so obvious, but I'll just lead you. There's no reason why I should be the only one who has to labour through this exegesis, so you can come with me. First, and some obvious things here, notice in the book of Acts that people retain ownership of some property, Mary and Cornelius and so on. They've all got houses later on. They don't sell everything. Secondly, take a closer look at the text, verse 32. It's a very interesting way this is phrased. No one, look, look with me at it. It's, it's one of the reasons I want to encourage you, and I know uh, almost all of you do, do bring your Bibles to church, because then I can show you these details and you'll see why they're so significant. No one said that any of the things that belonged to him were his own. Do you notice? That, well, do they belong to him or they're not? They do belong to him. What is being indicated here, it doesn't say no one retained ownership of his property. What it said is that people had things that belonged to them, but nobody said, that's mine. And you see that it's a rhetorically charged way of saying, nobody owned his property in such a way that he refused to countenance the possibility of ever sharing, ever giving beyond the tithe. Because nobody said, this is all mine to keep, you see? Furthermore, look at verse 32 again. They had everything in common. We'll see in a few minutes' time that the word translated common, uh, it's related to the Greek word koinonia, 
fellowship. And it, it has to do with not shared ownership of goods, but participation in the same project. They had everything in common in the sense that their, their goals were directed towards the same aim. It's why Paul says that he has koinonia, fellowship, partnership with the Philippian saints, and he thanks God for their participation, their koinonia with him, which was manifested in their giving to him. They sent money again and again, but they didn't sell everything and put it into a common fund and let Paul have a share in it. That's not what they did. But they were engaged in koinonia, partnership. So because we're engaged in the same project, well, I'm going to invest in your project because it's one project. Verse 34 as well, again, this is a point where, and you won't hear me saying this very often, but the New International Version translates this really well. Now, let's not be rude, but the New International Version is, is more of a paraphrase, uh, or in the direction of a paraphrase on the scale of Bible translations. But what it manages to capture very well is the meaning of, okay, Greek scholars um, pay attention, everyone else just look away for 30 seconds. It's the meaning of the Greek imperfect here. It has an iterative sense. What it means is, from time to time or periodically, this thing was done. The Greek imperfect indicates an action that's extended through time in some way. It doesn't mean that they were always selling things. It means that now and again, when it was necessary, these things were sold. And so the NIV has something like, from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them. And that's actually what the text means, and the, the NIV captures it very well because it paraphrases what isn't so obvious if you try to translate it literally because there's no such thing as a literal translation. There, you can't literally, word for word, translate anything. Obviously, you realize that if you know anything about language. So, it's not tithing. It's not Christian socialism. So what is it? Well, I've hinted at it already, but let's just flesh it out. The historical background that we learn from the book of Acts is really important here. In the first century in Judea, there were a series of famines. The, the harvests failed on multiple occasions. And the famines were particularly serious in and around Jerusalem. That's why when we get to chapter 6, verse 1, Luke expects us to know this. Because notice what he says in chapter 6, verse 1. In those days... When the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews, two parties within the church, because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And everyone says, what's a daily distribution? Well, you're supposed to know about the daily distribution. And if you were among the first readers of the book of Acts, you certainly would know about the daily distribution because it was a daily distribution of food. Everybody knows that there's famines in Jerusalem. That's why 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and um, in Romans 15, Paul makes reference to his collection for the saints in Jerusalem. He's going around all the churches, and one of the things he's doing is saying, guys, you're sharing in their spiritual blessings. Should they not share in our material blessings? And we're taking some money back so that our brothers in Christ don't die of starvation in Jerusalem. And of course, the problem of the famines was exacerbated by the hostility to the gospel that was evinced in the early church. Remember what Jesus said back in Mark 10? There's no one who's left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will fail to receive a hundredfold in the present age and in the age to come eternal life. What do you mean people have to leave their parents? People have to leave their siblings? People have to leave their children and their families and their homes because they're following Jesus. Well, absolutely. Absolutely they do. 
in many parts of the ancient world where Jesus and the apostles preached. That's what it meant to follow Jesus. And what that means financially is you're leaving behind all the normal means of support. You've got nobody else. Under normal circumstances, as Paul teaches elsewhere, the first place you ought to go for financial support in cases of need is your own family. If anyone doesn't look after his own relatives, he's, he's denied the faith. He's worse than an unbeliever. But of course, if you've got no family because you follow Christ and they've disowned you, well, that exacerbated the problems of the famine. So you've got not just not enough food to go round, but you've got, let's say, as happens so often today in the Muslim world, for example, you might have a 19-year-old woman, single, former Muslim, well, not in the first century, but in parts of the world today, former Muslim, converted to Christ, got no means of income, in a situation where there's not enough food to go around. What do you do? Why? She, she now has brothers and sisters within the church who will provide for her, provided there are people like Barnabas around, to pick up the slack. So that historical background helps us to understand what's going on. And of course, that makes sense of verse 34. Just look with me at verse 34. Look closely at what it says. There was not a needy person among them. Now that word needy, it's very rare in the New Testament. It's used once or twice in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to refer to people who don't have water. This is not people who haven't managed to save quite as much in their 401k as the guy sitting at the desk opposite them. It's not somebody who can't afford a ski holiday this year. It's, this is someone who is going to die of thirst by about one in the afternoon unless somebody helps. There's not a needy person among them. There's not a needy person. And so what happens in the situation that we've got here in Acts chapter 4 is that some people say, well, you know what, I've got, I've got something. And in this situation, I mean, I've tithed, obviously, but I have other resources. In the first century, it probably would have been mostly in the form of land investments, or in our context, it may be other kinds of investments property, and so on and so forth. I could give. I could give more so that my brothers and sisters in Christ would not be needy in this sense. And that's what they did. And, but Barnabas has held up as an example of this. Now, let me just speak briefly. There, there are, I don't know how, well, I don't know how to begin. I'm not sure where we'd ever end with fleshing out all the practical implications of this. But just think of a few, for example. We are geographically separated from the most serious needs in the Church of Christ, aren't we? The, the little scale of people numbered one to a hundred that I asked you to imagine earlier illustrates that quite well. Now, it's not that people among us don't have needs, of course, and it's not, therefore, that there should be no expectation of sharing among us. I think there should. Of course, there's all kinds of other things to say about that, maybe come to that later. We have forum today, by the way, if you want to talk about this in more granular detail. But if we are trying to take seriously what Acts 4 is actually speaking about is not speaking mostly about redistribution of financial resources among the wealthiest 10% of all the Christians in the world, is it? It's actually looking much further down the scale. 
And though we are not geographically separated from them, we don't need, uh, we are geographically separated from them, we don't need to be financially separated. Of course, it's very easy to be emotionally separated, isn't it? Um, I think this is probably, this is probably the motive that's, that drives some of the arm-twisting, borderline manipulative teaching you may have heard in the past. It's a good motive to try to wake us up to what we may be complacent about. But I don't think the best way to do it is to arm-twist and be manipulative. I think that's just sinful. At the same time, look, let's be honest, guys. Look, we, we prayed earlier for Pastor Radone. Um, tell you what happened yesterday and the day before, the, the session and the, the deacons and pastors and the soon-to-be-ordained deacons, we all met a very, in various ways, various combinations of us, for a total of a day and a half to plan the... You know, we all have our plans, don't we? The Lord laughs from heaven. But anyway, you've got to have a plan to plan the year ahead, to think about where the Lord has led us to and to try and think about our future as a church. Now, one of the things that we do always under the careful management of our treasurer, Elder Capone, is he'll come along and say, look, we've grown this much in this year, so the amount that we'd planned to give can now grow. What we try to do as a church, and I know most of you know this, we, we try to give away to ministries outside of All Saints one-tenth of what is tithed to us. Now, I don't think that's a biblical obligation, but it certainly, what it does help to do is to build a structure that ensures there is some movement of our enormous capital assets and income down that spectrum towards the lower income end among our brothers and sisters, yeah? So we're, we're putting in place a system that ensures some of that. So we get to the end of the year, and the Lord has grown us so spectacularly. Ask me about the figures later. We have $20,000 more in that pot that we have tentatively committed to give away than we've actually pledged. So what do we do? And so we're sitting there, and yesterday morning, Pastor Neil said, well, as one or two of you men know, uh, Pastor Radone, uh, his wife, and his son are both ill with persistent kidney disease, and it's thought, I guess by the doctors that they've been able to see, that the reason is that they're basically using a contaminated water supply. The church and their home have no clean water supply. So for $5,000, we could have a well dug for them so that they don't end up with persistent kidney infections and whatever else, I oh goodness knows what that does, throughout their lives. The church and that family, that pastor who is way down that end of the scale, we could help. And so it's like, yeah, well, let's do that. We, we pledged an additional donation to Pastor Kip. That those 80 or 100 kids, remember when Pastor Kip came to visit uh, a couple of months ago and he talked about how their Sunday mornings are organized? Let me remind you if you were there and, and tell you if you weren't. M the majority of the people to whom Pastor Kip ministers on a Sunday morning are children. There's about 50 or 60 adults, maybe it's 80 adults, but there's about 100 kids who come, and they all come earlier, and they're from the slum in Laresho, next door to where the church is located. The church meets in their house. They have like 50 or 60 people literally rammed into their home, standing in the doorway of the downstairs loo, right? Sorry, toilet. Sorry, restroom. Um, it's absolutely... But they, they have the kids. There's no space for them in the house. So they, they, they have them, they come early, and they feed them first. They give them a glut plastic cup of milk and some white bread to dip in the milk. 
These kids have nothing apart from the clothes they're standing up in and the mud shack that they live in, mud-floored shack that they live in. It's a great way to spend $5,000. And one day you're going to meet some of those kids in glory and it'll be like, thank you for breakfast. So that's one of the ways in which we try to build into the structure of our life as a congregation systems which will ensure that we don't lose sight of what's around us. You know how easy it is for the biggest problem you see, however small it is, to become overwhelming to you? I've seen, as a pastor, you see tragic examples of this. I've seen people who are terribly worried about their cats. Oh, my, my poor cat. She seems so, genuinely, I was doing door-to-door evangelism in London, this lady. And, you know, I'm worried about, I didn't know her, I was getting to talk to her on the doorstep. And, how, how are you doing? And, oh, I'm not doing so well, dear. And my cats, like, I'm sure the cats are having a rough time. <laughs> but we don't want to be the kind of church where our horizons of awareness of need are limited by just what we see, do we? Of course, we want to avoid the dangers inherent in all giving, and there's a bunch of them. I mean, one is just a kind of reactionary emotional attitude, giving to the thing that tugs on our heartstrings, or misdirecting our giving to places where, uh, let's say that there's somebody who had financial need because they'd been foolish and irresponsible, well, you're just kind of incentivizing and patching up folly and irresponsibleness, or cronyism in, a, in any congregation where there are some wealthy people who give generously, it's possible for the ministry of the church to be wrongly directed by the desires of those wealthy individuals. It's one of the reasons why I make it a point not to know who gives what in the church. I don't want to know, because it, it's I'm a human being. It would be hard for me not to be influenced by that. Sometimes, for some pastors, it's unavoidable, but I've never been in a position where my skills with financial matters have been good enough for me to need to know, and I'd rather not, because it helps me to not be partisan in that kind of way. It's fascinating what Barnabas does. This man is clearly wealthy. Look, look what he does. Verse 35. He brought the proceeds of what was sold, and this fascinating word, phrase, laid it at the apostles' feet, the point is that he's recognizing, I don't want you all to think there's any strings attached. This isn't a designated gift. You know, I'm going to give you some money, but I'd like you to buy a church organ with it. It's not that it's a bad idea to have a church organ, but it's like, okay, maybe that, maybe that wouldn't be the best thing to do with the resources that the church has. And so it's not that the apostles are infallible in this matter, but it's that they do have the ability to see more broadly what the needs are and how they might best be addressed, and that seems to be reflected here. I've often said this to people. They say, um, if I want to make an extra gift beyond the tithe, is it okay for me just to choose and give it to anybody I want? I want to say yes, of course it is, of course it is. But I, I guess one thing I would want to encourage you is why wouldn't you want the input that your elders or your pastors might give to that point? It's, it's not that we would say, no, you must stop, but it is the case that some uh, potential recipients of charitable giving are uh, less effective than others. Or it might be that you've come across something which is such a wonderful and worthy 
uh, object of charity, we say, yeah, you should definitely give to that. In fact, give to the, the session. Are we going to give more out of the funding that we're generously provided with by the congregation here? You know, we might be able to support more causes that are really worthy of that kind of practical support. So all these things are in the mix here. As we try to do in, let's be honest, one of the wealthiest congregations it's possible to imagine over the last 2,000 years, we try to do something like what they're doing here. Let me make just a few final comments. I, I, I mentioned um, that there are connections here reflecting their shared commitment to Christ. And that's really the other strand of what's going on. And time is limited, but I do want to say a couple of, couple of things here. There are some fascinating details scattered around this passage. Notice verse 32. They're of one heart and soul, echoes of Deuteronomy 6, what you're supposed to love the Lord your God with. They have a shared commitment to the Lord. And it's because of that shared commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ that they gave in this way. That's emphasised even more, actually, by not just the term koinonia, partnership, fellowship, but look at the flow of the text. Scholars have puzzled over this. You've got verse 32 about giving, verse 33 about the ministry of the gospel, then verse 34 about giving again. It's like, Luke, you can't keep your mind on a single subject, can you? You're constantly chopping and changing. Maybe the text is corrupt and has got chopped into bits. No, <laughs> He's on the same subject because the giving in verse 32 is part of the thing that commends the testimony to the risen Christ in verse 33, which is then elaborated in verse 34 and following. In other words, it's because, in part, of their generosity. They put their money where their mouth is that the testimony, the witness to Christ's work was heard. And that's why verse 33 is just sandwiched in the middle of all this stuff which looks like it's all about Barnabas and his wealthy friends giving. On which note, Barnabas, <laughs> look at the details about him. Barnabas, a Levite, a native of Cyprus. Now, what does this tell you? What this tells you about him was he was in a former life, before the coming of Christ, deeply, deeply attached to the promises of the old covenant people of Israel. He's a Levite. He, he's responsible for teaching in the synagogue in Cyprus, but he owned a field which apparently was in Jerusalem, so it could be sold quickly. Think about it for a second. A Levite who lives in Cyprus who owns a field in Jerusalem. Why? Well, because his hope is in the land, isn't it? He wants to pass this on to future generations. Maybe one day the temple will be restored in the land. Maybe one day my children and my grandchildren will get to live in a house in Jerusalem or next door to Jerusalem, right next to where the renewed temple of the living God is going to be built. And then he realizes the Messiah has come and his name is Jesus and the temple isn't in Jerusalem anymore. So in contrast with Judas, interestingly, who bought a field, Barnabas sold his. My stake is no longer, not that kind of stake, my, my stake is no longer in this land of Israel, this community around the physical Jerusalem, but in the Jerusalem that is above and in all those people who are gathered with me there, one heart and soul, worshipping the Lord Jesus Christ. It's though he's abandoned his old covenant hopes and placed all his hope in the new covenant Christ, the Lord Jesus. 
and then he gives to the body of Christ so that they might share in the blessings that Jesus has given him. It is like the gospel in miniature, isn't it? Selling your field, because you don't need this earthly temple of Jerusalem. We have the heavenly temple of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now the church, everywhere across this glorious, renewed physical world, is being blessed by the generosity that the Lord inspires within him. May we be like that man, that son of encouragement, Barnabas. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we're thankful to you for this passage of Scripture. We thank you for the challenge it contains to us whom you have blessed with such great wealth. We pray we would certainly not be those who steal from you. Lord, preserve us. Would we be those who bring the full tithe into the storehouse? But above and beyond that, would we be those who look for ways to be more generous still and so to bless our poorer brothers and sisters in Christ? And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.